All right. A little bit of an awkward pause there. So anyway, um, I was going to make a joke because uh, we were going to show our typical bumper video for First Peter. Maybe we can just skip that. We'll go right to, um, to our typical slides. I was going to make a joke because some of you have gotten so sick of that I don't know, that old-timey country bluegrass song. So you don't, you don't ever have to listen to that again if you don't want to. That is, uh, for some of you, that's good news. So uh, like Brian said, good morning. Um, and this is our last week in First Peter. And I am really excited to be able to, to cap it off, to give us a good summary, and to, to finish this thing up. So um, first and foremost, though, I want to just say, we've mentioned this several times throughout this series. We've done this for, what, three months now, I think? And we started this almost immediately after COVID really hit to the extent where we started shutting things down in this country. Um, And it has been unbelievable how timely this letter has been for us as a church. I mean, for the world in general, but God positioned us to be able to look at these words at this time in these circumstances for a reason. And it has been so timely. So I hope that 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 has been an encouragement to you. I hope you've noticed that and noticed that God is speaking to us as a church, that he's speaking to you as an individual, and he's giving us very tangible passages from scripture that deal with things that are similar to what we're going through right now. So I really hope that that's an encouragement to you. It's been an encouragement to me, um, very much feeling like God is, is in the midst of this and that he's continuing to speak to me and to us. Well, today, our passage the last few verses in First Peter. I want to encourage you to open up your Bible. Um, if you don't have one, uh, you got your phones on you, I'm sure. If you're at home, if you don't have your Bible, you can always hit pause, run and grab it, and come back. But we're going to look at First Peter 5, 12 through 14, literally the last three verses. And this is what Peter writes. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it or stand firm. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The end. (laughs) It's the end of his letter. So there's not a whole lot here, but there is, and uh, I'm excited to get into it with you. There's these last three verses and what these do, they, part of what these do is they remind us, at least they remind me, that this is a letter. Because these are final greetings. This is, like, this is what they did in the ancient culture. This is what a lot of people do today if you still write letters. How many of you have written a letter, like by hand, anytime recently, within the last week? We just don't do it as much anymore. I got one hand. That's awesome. <laughs> Some of you were raising your hands. Um, we just don't do it as much anymore. But we still do that, right? You still write closings sincerely. You know, I don't know, whatever the typical salutations are, but this was very, very typical. So he's wrapping up this letter, and this is a reminder for us that everything we've been covering over the last three months is meant to be taken as a whole. It was a letter that was meant to be read and to be heard all at once in one sitting. So as great as it is for us to be able to break it down passage by passage and to really understand it, because we need help in a culture that's 2,000 years in the future from what's going on here, we also have to remember we got to put it all back together. we got to put it back together and understand it as a whole. And I also want to encourage you, if you have not taken the time, we haven't really been pushing this, but if you haven't taken the time on your own to read through the whole book of 1 Peter at some point during the series, I really want to encourage you to do that this week. Take time. And, and, and that may sound intimidating to some of you. It is hard at times, and it, it's an 
It's ancient literature, but God will speak to you through it. And often when you take time to read through a big, bigger chunk of scripture, God will speak to you in different ways. He'll help you connect the dots in different ways. So I want to encourage you to try that this week. But in these final verses, Peter gives his closing. It's really typical. He basically says, hey, so-and-so says hi. He, he gives Silas a shout out. Silas was probably the person who brought the letter. So again, they didn't have a, like a postage uh, a, a mail system necessarily. They would just send a messenger with, he's like, here's my letter, take it to the, these Christians and read it aloud to them. So he's giving Silas a shout out saying, hey, I consider him, consider him my brother, listen to him, he's bringing this letter. He uh, gives a shout out to uh, she who is in Babylon. We'll, we'll cover that in, in a little bit. But then he also says, my son Mark says hi. He doesn't actually have a son named Mark. It's John Mark who wrote one of the gospels. He, he considers him a spiritual son. So all of that together, he's just taking, he's like, hey, so-and-so says hi, this person says hi, this person says hi. Pretty, pretty basic. Then he gives a last exhortation, a last encouragement. Hey, do this thing, and then a blessing. Peace to you in Christ. So it's pretty typical. He closes this letter. But I want to point out, he, he does this exhortation. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And if you were here last week or if you tuned in last week, uh, Stan preached and he nerded out on all of us with a little bit of grammar. So if you need a grammar recap, I encourage you to go back and listen to his message. He did a great job. But he talked about this thing called the antecedent. And the antecedent is basically whatever comes before a pronoun. So if you come across a pronoun like this, like we have here, the question is, okay, what is this referring to? What is the antecedent? Well, Peter does something fun here. Basically, the this here is referring to all of his teaching in this whole letter. So he, he writes this letter out and he says, okay, this truth that I'm giving you and reminding you, this is the grace of God. Stand firm in this, this truth. So we're gonna recap. We're gonna go back and recap this whole book and I think this will be a good practice for us to put it all back together. So even though that there's a lot in here and it's relatively complex, he covers a lot of different topics, I think that we can boil it down to three broad topics. And those three topics are identity, suffering, and action. So I think we can fit pretty much everything in this letter into these three categories. Peter comes back to these all throughout his letter. So the first one, identity. Identity. He starts his letter, and periodically throughout it, he comes back to this new identity. If you are in Christ, you are new. You are a new creation. You have a new identity. You have a new hope. You have a new future. Everything about you is new. You have a new family that you're a part of. And this included everybody. It included not only the Jews, it included, included the Gentiles. Pretty much anybody that was not Jewish was considered a Gentile. And this gospel was opened up to everybody. So the cool thing about this new identity, it is, it is no longer dependent on your nationality. For the longest time, the Jewish religion was mostly dependent on you being born a Jew. Not anymore. It's opened up for everybody. So to be Christian is not to be Jewish. And in the same sense, it's not a brand new religion. To be Christian is not to be Roman. For us today, to be Christian is not to be American. It's not. It's, it's a, 
it is a category of identity that transcends all of it. It's not based on race. It's not based on you being white or black or Hispanic. It's not based on those things. It transcends those things. This is a new identity in Christ. And what I love about this is, is the way Peter does this all throughout his letter, he starts by calling his audience exiles. Hey, you are exiles scattered about the diaspora. That's a fancy word. But for the longest time, that was used to talk about the Jewish people. But he's, he's telling this to the entire Christianity, the Christian community. You are all exiles. This is all true of you. This new identity comes with a new story as well. This book, and I want to speak to, to you in the room and you at home, this book is your story. This is your history. These are now your ancestors. Their legacy is what you get to pick up and carry on. You are given and handed a brand new story as someone who has been born again into Christ. And this is where he does this subtly. He does this very subtly throughout the, the whole letter. But I told you we'd come back to she who is in Babylon, right? So he mentions, okay, she who is in Babylon gives you greetings. It's nothing fancy. It can seem a little cryptic. But basically, he's talking about the church in Rome. So the, the Christians that live in Rome are saying hi. That's all he's saying. But he goes out of his way to say she who is in Babylon. So the church often is referred to the bride of Christ, right? So it was pretty common to use a she pronoun to refer to God's church. So she who is in Babylon, but Babylon doesn't exist anymore. At least the political power does not exist anymore. What does exist? Rome. Babylon was the oppressive political power that, over, that was ruling over the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament when they were in exile. And Peter takes this term, refers it to Christians in his present day in Rome, the political power that was ruling over Jewish people and Christians alike in that day. So very subtly, he is tying their story in with the biblical story. We are exiles. You have a new story, which is very interesting if you think about it. How often do we look at the people in this book and think of them as our ancestors? Because they are. They've gone before you. You get to take up their legacy and continue on with it. You are his chosen people. Just like the Jews were throughout the Old Testament. So this is difficult because for us, it is so easy to think in terms of earthly terms and earthly categories. So we have to, if we're going to best understand God's word and his new identity for us, we have to learn to stop thinking in terms that the world thinks in. We have to stop thinking in, in the, the world's terminology and the world's categories. Jesus said this um, in John 17. This is, this is one of, um, this is a great passage if you, if you haven't looked into it. Some people will call this the real Lord's Prayer because it's actually Jesus praying <laughs> to the Father. And, and this passage specifically is about the disciples. He says this, I have given them your word, his disciples, I've given, which includes us, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they, have, they are not of the world any more than I, have the, than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So a really common phrase, 
I've heard it a lot, at least in my lifetime, a really common phrase comes from this passage. A lot of Christians like to use this term. We are in the world, but we are not of it. In the world, but not of it. We have to work hard to prevent ourselves from becoming of the world. And a huge part of that is properly understanding our identity. So I want to give you three quick passages. Hopefully this serves kind of as a summary. Three quick passages from 1 Peter that kind of sums up what Peter has been trying to say from an identity standpoint. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, he says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God knew you, he chose you, you have been cleansed. These are identity statements that are true of you. First Peter 2, 5, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Show of hands real quick. How many of you have ever thought about yourself as a holy priest? Dan, awesome. <laughs> Love it. For most of us, pretty much everybody else in this room, myself included, this is weird. Like, we don't think about ourselves as being holy priests, but Peter is telling you this is true of you. And I want to suggest if you haven't thought about yourself as a holy priest, you might not fully understand who you are. You might not have internalized this new identity fully because that's true of you. Similarly, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he says, but you are not like that. He's, he was previously talking about the non-believers in the world. He says, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. This is true. This is true of you. You are God's possession. You have been made holy. You have been set apart. It's done. We have to understand this about ourselves. We have to work to internalize this and hold on to it and claim this as our identity. It makes all the difference. We are new people. And we live in a world, this is the hard part, we, we live in a world that will constantly try to pull us back to earth. It'll constantly try to pull us back to an earthly or a worldly identity. It'll try to bring you back here. The world has a bunch of categories for people. The world will try to say, you're white, you're black, you're Hispanic, you're male, you're female. You're a conservative, you're a liberal. You're anti this, you're anti that. You're rich, you're poor, you're oppressed, you're privileged. We have these categories. And it is so easy to just go along with what the world does and pigeonhole people and shove them in a box and say, this is who you are, but that's not who you are. Amen. You are new in Christ. You've been born again. You are his possession. That transcends everything. We have to own that as our identity. 
Furthermore, I think the world will also try to define you based on your past. We, we live in, in a world that, that loves to talk love and tolerance. We live in a world broadly that is very unforgiving, is very harsh towards people. It really is. You, did, you, you made a, a big mistake five, six years ago that defines you for the rest of your life. Especially if you, I mean, this is so hard to wrap our minds around sometimes, but if you've become a Christian recently, like let's say you became a Christian a week ago, nothing about your past defines you. Even if you're still wrestling with sin or patterns of sin, that does not define you. It is not true of you. What's true of you is that you've been cleansed. That's the truth, that you are holy. God has made you holy. He has cleansed you by the blood of Jesus. That's what's true. We are his possession. So this is the first thing, first thing of three that he has told us to stand firm in. So I'm gonna ask, uh, I'm gonna ask for my son's help a little bit. Come on up, Teddy. Um, we are told to stand firm in this truth. Remember, I talked about this. Peter used this term, you gotta stand firm, and he's summarizing his whole letter. Come on up here, bud. All right. So I'm gonna try something real quick. So Teddy, wave hi. Can you wave hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Okay, so sometimes I love to hang out with my kids. They come down to their level, and I love just to hang out with them, and I go along with the flow. But if I do this, watch what happens. Teddy, can you try to push me over? Push me over. No, you're not gonna push me off the stage. You really wanted to do that, huh? I know. Just push me right here. Can you push me real hard? Oh, you... <laughs> Good job. Okay, push me from the front. Push me from the front. <laughs> You're strong, dude. Okay, I'm going to try this again, though. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to prepare myself and position myself the right way. Okay, now try. Try, for, try from a different angle. Can you try from, try from my back? And try to push me over. Woo! Nah. Good job, dude. Thanks, man. Thanks. Good job. Can you go see mommy? Thanks, buddy. All right. So, so Teddy, love him to death, is quite a bit smaller than me still. It was not hard. I, was, I swear I was not letting him push me over. He can push me over. He's strong if I'm not ready for it. But if I stand firm, if I prepare myself, right, there's strategy involved, then I can withstand it better. Does that make sense? If you just go along with what the world tells you, if you just follow what everybody else is doing around you, it is really easy to be knocked off your feet. It's really easy. So Peter tells us to stand firm. And you know what? There's, there will be things that come against you directly. Just a few weeks ago, Pope preached on the fact that we have an enemy. Peter talked about this in chapter five, that we have an enemy. And he uses the same word, stand firm. Resist your enemy, resist the devil, stand firm in the faith. Same thing, you gotta prepare yourself. Stand firm, box up. And you'll be able to withstand so Peter is using this imagery for us. It is not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to follow Jesus. It's not supposed to be. It's hard. And there will be things that come against you. You have an enemy who's going to come after you. There will be suffering. Suffering is hard. 
There will be things and outside pressures that will try to knock you off your feet. So that brings us to our next category is suffering. Peter talks a lot about suffering in this letter. And they're connected. But when it comes to suffering, he effectively says that there will be suffering. Embrace it. Don't just endure it. Embrace it. Be ready for it. Count it all joy when you suffer for Christ and God's purposes work through suffering. They do. A few passages from Peter he gives us. He says in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he starts off, when he's talking about suffering, he starts by talking about Jesus. Jesus suffered first. And there was a purpose to it. It was for you. And he was ultimately not conquered by death. He conquered death and he was raised again by the spirit. 1 Peter 4.1, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had. And be ready to suffer, too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You're done with sin. I love this. He says, because Christ suffered, and you're, you should expect suffering yourself, arm yourselves. Not, not to retaliate, not to push back. Arm yourselves with an attitude. And the attitude is be ready for it. Embrace it. It's a little bit different. But you have to do that. You have to arm yourself with that attitude because it doesn't come naturally. We don't want to suffer. We don't like that. That's no fun. So I want to ask you the question, are you ready to suffer? Are you? I'm not saying that you will. We're pretty blessed in America. Christians hold a lot of privilege. We have for a long time. Like there's, there, there are literally tons of Christians throughout the world that are suffering, truly suffering, being killed, murdered, harmed for their faith. We don't have to worry about that here. But I still want to ask you that question. Are you ready for suffering? What if it does come? How are you going to respond? What if it's a little bit different? First Peter 4.19, he says, so if you are suffering, if you are already suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. If you are already suffering, keep doing what is right. Sometimes we back off. When, when we face hardship, when we face difficulty, when we face suffering, we tend to think, oh, you know, God might not be in that. I'm going to turn around and go the other way until things get a little easier. But if it's the right thing to do, keep doing what's right. And trust God, because he is the one who will never fail you. So suffering was an absolute reality for Peter's audience. For us, not as much. I mean, it's very, very different. Um, a lot less violent. But suffering was a reality for them. But sometimes for us, again, in our context, we have somehow gotten it in our mind that if we believe in Jesus, our suffering will be alleviated. That it'll just go away. Or it'll just get easier. Right? So much of our prayers are focused around that. It's good to pray for each other and to bring prayer requests. Absolutely good. And God cares for them. But it shows up sometimes when, in our prayers when all we do when we pray is we ask for God to, to better our lives and make the pain go away. If that's all our prayers are, we might have fallen into this mindset, well, God's supposed to make my life easy. 
That's not a biblical message. The biblical message is embrace it. Be ready for it. God has a greater purpose through all of your circumstances. So I think for us, the baseline message for this, because we're not facing the same kind of suffering, I think the baseline message for us is that do, do not let difficulty, hardship, or suffering deter you from fulfilling God's call in your life. If things get hard, do not take that as an immediate sign that God is not in it. Don't do that. God very well may be in it. God may be leading you into suffering for a greater purpose that you haven't realized yet. So when things get hard, don't just turn back and go the other way. Pray about it. Come to God and see what he is wanting to do through those circumstances. If it is good, if it is right, then God may ask you, hey, keep going. Keep doing the right thing. Trust me with your life. I will never fail you. And I want you to think about something. God has, a, God has an assignment for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. God has an assignment for you. And sometimes when we, when we hear a nudge or we, we're, we start going in that way, things will get hard. So I want to ask you, are you going to pick up your assignment? What has God put in front of you right now to do? And this leads us to our third and final category that I believe that, that Peter mentions in this book is action. That's really broad, I know. Um, but he talks about action. And this is one thing I love about the New Testament letters in, in general is it's pretty much any letter you open up, it's like half theological and half action. And they're always tied together, right? Because this is true, do this. It's always tied together. So action, what does it actually mean to stand firm in these truths? I think it means to put it in action. Uh, I don't know if any of you have taken philosophy in college or anything like that. I remember taking, I forgot what philosophy class it was. I forgot which philosopher it was. But I remember hearing this statement that some old philosopher said something along the lines of, to know the truth is to do the truth. And I remember when I heard that, I'm like, that's nonsense. That's not, that's not true at all. People always know what, what the right thing to do is, and they rarely do it. But I started to realize, and I've, as I've grown older, I've realized, hey, this is, that's true for us in our civilization. But for a very, very long time, especially in Jewish culture, that was true. If you knew something to be true, you did it. So much of our Western Christianity, and America, like, Christianity in America and in the Western Hemisphere has become this idea of as long as you believe what is right, you're going to go to heaven. So we spend effortless, or not effortless, we, we spend timeless effort working on crafting the perfect doctrine and getting everything just right, and we divide each other over it. Because if you disagree with me, I've got the right doctrine, so if you disagree, you're hellbound. If you agree with me, then you're virtuous and you're, you're good. You're in a right spot, right? But the problem with that dichotomy that has happened over the years is we have basically made this idea as like, as long as you know the truth, you're going to heaven. Action is a little bit less emphasized. We still emphasize it, but it's kind of a secondary thing. But I want to give you a question that I think would come from Peter's mouth too. If you do not act on what you know, do you actually know it? Think about it. If you do not act on what you know, do you actually know it? I've used this illustration before. Like, if you know a hurricane is coming and you do nothing, you don't believe there's a hurricane coming. 
If you actually believe that a natural disaster is on your way, you're going to respond. You're going to do something, right? Same happens with faith, right? If you know Jesus to be Lord, if you know that he is... Have, he has recreated you in his image. You've been born again into this new identity. If you know that to be true, it should affect the way you live. It has to. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're not taking tangible steps to follow him, to hear his voice, to put yourself in a position to share his message, I want to ask you that question. Do you actually believe in Jesus? That might be a hard question but it's a good one. We need to analyze this. We need to, we need to do some self-reflection on this. Here's a few pa- passages that Peter gives on, on the topic of action. 1 Peter 1, 13, he says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Prepare your minds for action. And I love this. He says, put all of your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you. Put all your hope. Put all your eggs in one basket. That's what he's saying. We're told not to do that. Why? Because we're afraid. We want a security blanket. He's saying, no, put all your eggs in one basket. Put all of your hope in Jesus. First Peter 3.15. He says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about the hope, about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Lord of your life, have you fully relinquished control to God in every aspect of your life? You see, too often, and I feel this in my own life, too often we, we will say that, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. Yes, Jesus, you know, I follow you, I do this. But sometimes Jesus is only Lord of our Sundays. Sometimes it's just one little area of our life, you know, like I want to hold on control in this one area of life, God. I want to hold control in my finances. I want to hold control in my marriage. I want to hold control with my kids. Wherever that area is, sometimes we like to hold on to control. But that's part of this action, is relinquishing control to God in every aspect of life. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, because of that, because the world is ending soon, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. I love that that's where he goes, right? The world is ending soon. Instead of panic and prepare, he says pray. Devote yourself to prayer. How often are we devoting ourselves to prayer? That is one of the most important actions a Christian can do. One of my favorite quotes is by an old philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, but he says something along the lines of, to pray is, to br- is like breathing. If you stop breathing, you die. If you stop praying, you die spiritually. It is that important. It is so important to be people of prayer. We have to put our beliefs into action. I want to go back very quickly to John 17. So earlier we talked about this passage, this phrase, in the world but not of it. We throw that out there all the time. And it's nice, it's catchy, it can be helpful. But I realized this is not actually in the Bible. Nowhere does Jesus say, hey, you're supposed to be in the world but not of it. It doesn't say that. So I want to take a closer look at it. So I'll read what we read before, but I'll continue on a little bit past it. He says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And here we go. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. It doesn't say in the world, not of it. It says into the world. You see a difference? There's a slight difference there. We're not supposed to just be in the world, but not of it. That kind of communicates something a little bit different than the fact that we are sent into the world on a mission. We're not just to survive the world. We're meant to join Jesus in saving it. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? We're not just meant to withstand the world. We're meant to win it for Jesus. There's a big difference. Too often, I think Christians just try to survive and get by. But we're here on a mission. We have been saved to be sent. And this whole series, this whole letter, we've called it Hope in the Midst of Chaos. It's not just about us having hope in the midst of a chaotic world. It's about us providing hope to a world in chaos. It's about action. What are we doing? What are you doing? And I'm not saying this is like a guilt trip. I just want to draw our attention to a greater picture of what does it mean to live a Christian life, especially now. We're not here just to to get by and wait until we die and go to heaven. We're here on a mission to save souls, to bring more sons and daughters home to their father in heaven. And we all have a role in doing this. Every single one of us has a role These closing verses give us a glimpse of this. Again, he gives a shout out, right? He gives all these shout outs to to Silas, to this whole church in Rome, and to Mark. There's more people involved than just Peter. Sometimes we, we always focus on the big names, Peter, Paul, obviously Jesus, the 12, but it's often the unnamed people that made the biggest impact. Everybody has a role to play. You have a role to play. And I want to look at you and say this. You have a role. You may not have figured it out yet, what your role is, but you have one. So I want to suggest something else to you. If you have not picked, if you've not taken up your assignment, remember we talked about this, God has an assignment for you. If you have not taken that up, if you've not taken steps to find what ministry God has given you, you, because we, You should know this. Ministry is not about what happens in this building. Ministry is what God's people do to share the gospel with the world, to care for people. That's ministry. You have a ministry. You have a role. If you haven't taken steps in that direction, I don't think you really realize who you are. Because again, the identity piece, you are God's possession. He saved you. He cleansed you. You are perfect in his sight. And then he has sent you back into the world on a mission with a role, with an assignment. And if you haven't picked it up, do you really understand who you are? You might need to do more work in internalizing this new identity for you. So some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, God hasn't given me an assignment. I don't know. He hasn't told me anything. I don't know what that means. Fair. <laughs> that's, that's a common, common thought, common feeling. I'll give you a couple hints. Read this book. Start here. 
Because you know what? There are a ton of instructions in this book. Read it and do what it says. That's your first assignment. If you want to follow Jesus, you actually got to do what he says. Start somewhere. It could be something very simple. But Jesus had Jesus said some very hard things. So find something he said and figure out what does it look like to practice this, to put it into practice. And then second of all, look where you're at. Look where you are in life. Look where God has placed you. Because again, sometimes we just think in terms of coincidence. We think in terms of what the world says and teaches and we just follow along. We don't necessarily slow down and ask this question of like, okay, God has me here. Does he have me here for a reason? I I don't necessarily know all of your circumstances. I know some of them, but God has placed you where you are for a reason for this time. So ask yourself, okay, has God given me any gifts, any skills that can serve people around me? And what kind of needs are there around me right now? Why has God placed me in these set of circumstances for this moment? And that will usually give you a good hint of what God is has calling you to. So read the Bible, do what it says, and then look and ask prayerfully why God has you where you are. Your assignment, I mean, it could, you may have a lifelong calling. You may have something that God is like, hey, I just need you to do this one thing this one day. This is your assignment for the day. And it could make all the difference. So search for it and pick it up and walk with it. I want to give you a few examples. Um, because, you know, I have the benefit of the fact that I, I work for a church. So this, this is my ministry, and it's, it's relatively straightforward in some ways. It's tangible and like, okay, what I do is ministry. But you are supposed to be in ministry as well if you're not already. Like if whatever you do, see it as a ministry. So um, I've picked a few examples that came to my mind. A, a school teacher. Like we got a handful of, of teachers in our church. If you were a teacher, you have an unbelievable opportunity in front of you because you interact with kids. And I know it's crazy right now. (laughs) But you have an opportunity to truly bless people that may be far away from Christ or have dire needs in their life. There is a, uh, some of the students in the room may remember this group. There's a a duo from Denver. They've done a couple of our winter camps a few years ago. Um, Two teachers in the Denver school area that have created a side ministry. It's all about skits and improvisation and stuff like that, but they've made it into a ministry. And I remember when I first was hearing about them, they distinctively said, hey, we love this side ministry because we get to be vocal about our faith, but we love being teachers and in the world because we can do ministry there. It may not be vocal, but we can still love and care for people in the name of Jesus. Some of you may be small business owners. Have you ever thought and slowed down and realized that, hey, your small business is not yours. It's ultimately God's. How would he run it? This is kind of silly, but it was tangible and it stuck with me about a little less than a year ago. Um, I needed a, an emissions test for our new diesel car. And it was like, it's strangely hard to find a diesel emissions place. I didn't realize it's such a specialty, but there was one kind of close to our house. I'm like, okay, I'll go there. And I, I, I went in dropped it off, set up an appointment. I walked in. It's a small, tiny little waiting room, really, really, really small business. And the first thing that caught my attention is that over the speakers, instead of music, was literally an audio Bible being read. I was like, whoa, okay, this is interesting, even for me. And so I, it caught me off guard, and I waited there for like, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and uh, other people were in the waiting room, and I saw the, the owner come in after he did my test, and I was like, 
brought it up to him like, hey, I'm a Christian too. What, what, like, I'm really interested that you have the Bible playing. And he, he came out. It's a small thing and it's an interesting thing. You may disagree with his tactics. I don't know. But he came out and said, you know, I just really felt like this was a way I could honor God is even if people are offended, like I'm, they're exposed to the word of God. Some of them sit and listen to it. Some of them are so offended they have to leave. But I just feel like that's me being faithful. It's interesting. He took it upon himself to honor God wherever he was. If you're just, you know, some of you might be sitting like, hey, I'm just a high school student. I'm just in middle school. Like, what can I do? You can do a lot. There have been amazing things done by teenagers over the years. Amazing things. And not to toot my own horn, but like God, God got a hold of me when I was in high school. So I was really, really young in my faith, but really passionate. And I remember distinctly, it was so interesting to go through, but I remember my senior year, I had this opportunity. Uh, I was in a debate class. It was an elective. And the final project was, hey, you get to pick whatever topic you want. You just have to argue it, debate it in front of the class. And so I was like, huh, that's interesting. And so I went up to the teacher and I was like, hey, could I defend the existence of God? And it was like, okay. <laughs> so they let me. So I got to like literally for a big school final project, I had the class's attention for 15 minutes. I, I, I spent weeks putting together this presentation and it was amazing how God honored that. It was a small thing, but it was also a big thing for me because I was a brand new Christian and God put me in a position to defend my faith in front of a bunch of people that considered themselves to be atheists. This was at Boulder High in the center of Boulder. It was interesting. But again, if you see where God has placed you, if you see what opportunities are in front of you and you prayerfully ask, God, what do you want me to do here? And if you look to the Bible and just do some of the basic things that says, like God will give you very clear direction. It may not be as clear as you want it to be, but it'll be clear enough for you to start taking steps and put it into action. So I want to ask you, what's your assignment? Are you picking it up? Are you actually being a part of expanding the kingdom, of spreading the gospel to the world? And I know that's a loaded question because our context is really interesting right now. 2020 has been a weird year. It really has been. A lot of people had big expectations for, you, for this year. Some people thought that 2020 was going to be their year. Some people thought that they were going to pull some stuff together in 2020. And it kind of blew up their lives a little bit. And it's weird, we're going to be able to look back at this year and basically summarize the entire year with the words global pandemic and immense social unrest. It's a weird, weird year. So what do we do as Christians? What does it mean to follow Jesus right now? And I tell you, I'll tell you now, I, I'm not going to give you any easy answer because following Jesus is rarely easy or straightforward. You know, sometimes we're just figuring it out as we go, but we're called to be faithful and obedient. But I'll give you a few ideas, just a few ideas to ponder, right, as we, as we close. We talked about prayer being absolutely essential. That's an essential action as a Christian, pray. And one of the passages we talked about was, was submitting to authorities. So pray for your authorities. It's a, it's a big political year, a big election. Don't take sides. I'm, I'm not taking sides. Pray for people. Pray for our leadership. Pray for Trump. Pray for Nancy Pelosi. Pray for your local governors. Pray for Governor Polis. Pray for your leadership, period. They are made in the image of God. Honor them and pray for them. That's one area. Pray for people. 
Another one is you can start figuring out more and more how do you think of others first? How do you start thinking of others first? Okay, the restrictions with COVID has been really weird. Masks, no fun. I don't like masks. I don't think I know anybody that actually likes this whole mask business. Staying six feet away, doing all this, like there's a lot of stuff going on. But too often we come to this conversation with a me first mentality. I think this is stupid, so I'm not gonna do it. Like, take a moment to practice putting someone else first. Protecting someone else. Considering someone else may be in a precarious situation or they have someone they care about that, that might be high risk. Put, put others first. Another one, you could listen and start conversations. There's a lot of anger going on right now in the world. A lot of it's justified. A lot of it may not be. I don't know. But, but again, we need to listen. I think a lot of the anger, a lot of the outcry is that we are not being heard. So let's listen. Let's start meaningful conversations where we can understand each other, build relationships and build bridges and actually be a people that unifies people groups. And then finally, this one's a little bit more vague, but bring Jesus into the spotlight where you can. Bring him into the spotlight where you can. Because right now, people are really struggling to find hope. And they're trying to find hope in somehow successfully beating this pandemic. Who, who knows how long, the, what the timeline is going to look like for beating COVID. But people are putting their, all of their hope in, okay, we're going to beat this thing. Or we hope that we do. A lot of people are putting their hope in social institutions. The government, please save us, like fix all of the issues in the world. And it's not a bad thing to, to, to work toward a better society. That's good. We should do that. But Jesus is the only one that can truly save people, heal people, redeem people, restore the world. He's the only one that can do that. So bring Jesus into the spotlight where you can. Figure out what does it look like to share the hope that I have in Jesus with the people in my life. And yeah, that may be hard. It may be intimidating. You may not know how to do it. But don't let that deter you. Stand firm in these things and move. So based on Peter's word, his whole letter, he gives us this word, stand firm. Stand firm firm. I think what that looks like in these three categories, work to understand your identity. That is, that is work. Internalize who you are in Christ. You are a new person. You are a new creation. You've been born again into a living hope of Jesus Christ. Work to internalize that. Be prepared for suffering. It may not be physical suffering, but be prepared for hardship. Be prepared for it. And don't let it deter you if the thing that you're being called to do is for the kingdom. And then finally, act for the kingdom. What's your assignment? I want you to ponder that question this week. Wherever you are, what is God put in front of you to take up and do? And then do it. And just watch God move. Because again, I think when we, when we act on what we know to be true, then we truly know it. When we act on these things, we start to understand even more who we are in Christ. We are a son and a daughter. We've been sent on a mission. We are a part of a bigger story that goes beyond our immediate circumstances. This story is not over. We get to be a part of it. So Rock Creek Church, as we finish this book, I want to pray for you. Pray for us and beyond. And... Uh, 
I hope that this has been a blessing to you because it's God's word. It's certainly been a blessing to me over these last three months. But let's finish in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for how timely this book has been for, for me, for us as a church. I pray that you would teach us more and more. Help us to move to action, to understand who we really are more and more. Help us to be prepared to do difficult things in your name. And I pray in the midst of all that, you would give us a greater peace, your peace which surpasses all understanding. Lord, we come to you this morning. We, we worship you. We praise your name. We look to you as our living hope, the ultimate hope in this world that has fallen into chaos and more chaos than we've seen in a while. And I pray that you would reign supreme, that your kingdom would be pushed forward, that, that your people would see this chaos as an opportunity to step into the mess, to bring your word and to bring revival in new ways even if it's just our next door neighbor, even if it's just one life, I pray that you would help us to grow your family. So Jesus, we thank you, we worship you, we praise your name, and we ask that you would go before us, prepare us, and help us to lean into our new identity in you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.